Now, of course, we know that God is the God of Israel, that Israel is his chosen people. And so it might surprise you, or it should at the very least, that so much of the Old Testament prophets are devoted to the Gentiles. We see Old Testament prophets and Isaiah, of course, we see that here. They direct much of their ministry, their proclamation, their words to the Gentiles. And this is actually very surprising because in the ancient times of Isaiah's days, all the peoples, all the pagans believed in territorial gods. What that means is, if you are a Philistine, then you worship the gods of the Philistines. But let's say if you moved to Egypt, then you would worship the gods of Egypt. Without exception, in the ancient world, gods were territorial. They were local deities worshipped by local tribes. And so what comes across really unusual and unique is that in the Old Testament, the prophets of the Lord do not merely speak to people of Israel who live inside the boundaries of Israel, but they spoke to all peoples and devoted much space and time and ministry to declare God's word to the nations. And that, of course, uh, tells us immediately that there is something different about the God that we serve versus the gods of the surrounding nations. Jehovah, he is the judge of whole earth. He does not merely judge Israel, but he judges all mankind. And Jehovah is the only one who can save people from every tribe, nation, and language. And so God's word goes out to Moab this morning And the first thing we see this morning here from these two chapters is Moab's search for salvation. Moab's search for salvation. Now, those of you uh, who are familiar with the Old Testament know uh, who Moab is. Um, Some of you might not be familiar. Uh, Moab is a great nation at this time. And Israel and Moab had a very long and complex relationship. Moab was the name of a son that that Lot had. And Lot, of course, was Abraham's nephew. And when God rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot uh, ends up having an incestuous relationship with his eldest daughter. And the son that was born out of that incestuous relationship was Moab. And over time, out of that son Moab, a great nation of people came. And what that means is that uh, Israel and Moab are distant relatives uh, through their connection to Abraham. Uh, But there was a lot of tension between Israel and Moab because when Uh, Israel came out of Egypt in their exodus and they wanted, uh, they asked for permission from Moab to uh, cross their lands to shorten their journey. Moab refused passage to Israel. 
However, the Lord uh, forbade Moses and the Lord forbade Israel from fighting against Moab because Moab's uh, connection to Lot and through Lot to Abraham. And of course, you might also remember that the Moabites also hired the prophet for hire, Balaam. And they hired Balaam and they paid him money to curse Israel. And when that didn't work, because the Lord would not let Balaam utter a curse against Israel, when that did not work, uh, Moab successfully caused Israel to stumble by enticing them with sexual immorality. That is to say, that's just a very brief overview. Israel and Moab have a long, complex, and storied history between them. And for these and other reasons, God promised to visit Moab's sins upon her. And when um, we come to Isaiah, when God judged Israel's covenant faithlessness, when God judged Israel's covenant breaking by the Assyrians that he brought against them, it also became the occasion for God's judgment upon Moab. And so Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 describe Moab's panicked search to save themselves from the judgment. Now, you may have noticed as I read these two chapters, there are a lot of strange names. Of course, to us, they mean nothing. Uh, but these were well-known places, and it describes a movement of the Moab, uh, Moabites from the border regions as the Assyrians made their way into the land of Moab. We are reading about a great movement of people fleeing from the borderlands to the inner parts of Moab and further down south. And we are reading about the, the destruction and devastation that the Assyrians are bringing so that this is a, uh, this is a description of a mass migration uh, starting from the borderlands to the inner parts of the country and fleeing toward uh, Jerusalem. And so what we read in Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 uh, is Moab in utter panic searching for ways to save themselves from the onslaught of the Assyrians, which is, in fact, Moab desperately seeking for ways to save herself from God's judgment. And they came up with two solutions. And the two solutions that they came up with were religion and politics. Now, of course, uh, troubled people often turn to religion, and Moab was no exception. So when you read chapter 15, verse 2, he has gone up to the temple to weep. So Moab sees the devastations of the Assyrians, and in this mass migration of refugees fleeing the war, they ascend and they go to their temple to bow down before their gods, to pray and to weep. But of course, it was for nothing. Because Moab's gods, Moab's gods have never delivered Moab the way that the Lord had rescued Israel from Egypt. Moab's gods have never come through 
for their people, the way that the Lord rained down bread from heaven and made water to flow from the rock. And Moab's gods have never provided peace for their people the way that the God of Israel gave sacrificial system so that they can bring their guilty conscience and offer sin offering and have their sins forgiven, that they may have peace and confidence before God. And Moab's gods have never provided reason to have joy before their gods the way that the Lord appointed times of feast. And not only the times of feast, much of the offerings that Israel bring would end with a meal. And that, of course, made a very important point. Worshippers come to God with their burdened hearts. They bring their sin offerings. They bring various kinds of gifts to the Lord. And the Lord does not send them away empty-handed. The Lord has them sit down in His presence and have a feast. And that's the Lord declaring to them, Do you see? You have come with burdened hearts, and I send you away with the feast. I send you away with joy. And Moab's gods had never done any of these things. Why? You see, unlike the God of Israel, who brought Israel out of Egypt and provided for them in the wilderness, who provided for their spiritual needs and physical needs, who time and time again protected them, Moab's gods and Moab's religion were a figment of man's imagination. And a figment of man's imagination cannot save. So Moab, in the, in the hour of their need, turned to their gods, but their religion would not help them. But they also had a second strategy. And their second strategy was politics. And so we read in chapter 16, verse 1, and here we, we are almost as though we become fly on the wall listening to the discussions of the Moabite leaders. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Uh, you see, the Moabites traditionally offered the tribute of lambs to enter into political treaties and covenant, and they would send the tribute of lambs uh, to their uh, political benefactors. And so this is where the, the leaders of Moab are discussing and coming up with a plan. Let's make a treaty with Israel. Let's enter into a covenant with Judah. And let's ask them to be our political benefactors and protectors that we uh, can find shelter and protection through their power. And so we read what the message that they are sending to Jerusalem is. And this is the message they are sending. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Now that's an interesting expression. The gist of that expression is that they are feeling the heat of the Assyrians as though it is a raising and blazing flame. And so they're asking, be a shade for us against this blaze. Shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive. Don't deport the migrants. Save us, hide us. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. That's the message that they are sending to Jerusalem. And of course, this is really interesting, isn't it? Because 
This must be what people call a poetic justice. Moab, Moab refused to shelter Israel when they were the sojourners. But now they find themselves asking for shelter. They find themselves the sojourners and they hope to find refuge and shelter from Israel through political negotiations. So that's the first thing we see, Moab's search for salvation. On the one hand, they turn to their religion, which was useless. And on the other hand, they came up with a political strategy. And so the second thing is how God answers Moab's search for salvation. Once again, false religion cannot save. Look, chapter 16, verse 12. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. How can false religion save? How can God, uh, that is the figment of man's imagination, save? So Moab's religion will not save. Neither will politics. And what's really interesting is that Moab thinks that her problems are pressing inward from the outside. Now, on the one hand, that is an understandable perspective, isn't it? Um, they think the Assyrians are the root of their problems. They are invading them, and their solution is to be delivered from the Assyrians. But as usual, without the spiritual insight that comes from the Word of God, they don't have the capacity to understand the true nature of their problem. It's not that Moab's problems were pressing inward from the outside. It was actually her problems, her inward problems manifesting outwardly. Because what is happening to Moab is not merely that the Assyrians had imperial ambitions, but that God was executing his judgment upon Moab for her sins. But because Moab misunderstands our problem, her solution is more religion and more works. But Moab needs really to be rescued from herself. Moab needs a redeemer. And that is why Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 are not simply a record of a panicked nation searching for a salvation and a rescue. Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 are also a revelation of a redeeming God. And what we see here is on the one hand that God judges sin. He pours out his wrath upon sin. But he does so with deep grief in his heart. So chapter 15, verse 5, we read, My heart cries out for Moab. Whose heart? And we, we see clearly who is speaking when we uh, read ahead a few verses and come to chapter 15, verse 9, we read, For I will bring upon Dibon even more, a lion for those 
of Moab who escape. Now, this is uh, it's kind of a subtle and interesting point that Isaiah is making because uh, from other parts of the Old Testament, for example, 2 Samuel chapter 23, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, Moab boasted in its powerful military, and Moab called at least some of her troops aerials. Uh, aerials uh, more uh, probably means lions of God. And so uh, I think if we put it in modern terms, these were Moab's special forces, mighty and valiant warriors, and they call them aerials, the lions, lions of God. But now, before the Assyrians, before their power, before their military, before their might, these aerials, these lions of God have proven to be less than nothing. And now, to the people who boasted in their power, we have lions of God fighting for us. Now God will bring his lion against Moab and their survivors. This is God executing his holy judgment, pouring out his wrath upon sins of Moab. And it is that holy God who visits Moab's pride, sin upon them. It is that holy God who cries for Moab. Fifth chapter 15, verse 5, My heart cry out for Moab. And then in chapter 16, verse 9, Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer. God shares in the grief and the pain of Moab who were receiving his judgment and wrath. You know, isn't it interesting? We so often pit God's holiness against compassion. We think that God who is holy cannot be loving. God who judges cannot be loving, and a loving God would never judge. But the Bible never pits the two uh, characters of God against each other. God is both. God judges Moab, and he grieves over her. Because he is holy, he judges them, and yet because he is compassionate, he teaches them how they can be saved. And so Isaiah answers Moab's panic request in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. When the oppressor is no more, the destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, that a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And of course, Isaiah is directing, directing them to realize that Moab, even after the end of the war, even when the oppressor is gone, you need to be rescued. And that rescue will only come from the Davidic king who sits upon the throne of David. And only that king who reigns with righteousness, that king can save her. You see, 
Moab's needs is greater than to escape the wrath of the Assyrians. Moab's true need is to escape the holy and righteous judgment of God. And only the king who sits on David's throne can do that for her. There is only salvation only in the Messiah. This is what God is teaching Moab. And then thirdly and finally, we see Moab's greater loss. You see, God invited Moab to bow before the Davidic king, to bow before the Messiah. And of course, we know who that is. That king is Jesus. And this is God calling because God is not merely the God of Israel over the people who live within the boundaries of Israel, because God is the Lord of all, because He is the judge of all mankind, but because He is also the Redeemer of all mankind. This is God calling even the Gentiles to salvation. And the salvation God is teaching them will come one day in the cross of the Davidic king where Jesus died because it is upon that cross we see God in the fullness of his holiness and compassion. In his holiness and justice, he judges man's sin upon the cross, upon the body of his son. And in his compassion, he provided his son to be the substitute, the one who stands in the sinner's place to receive God's wrath. It is the cross where Moab's ultimate hope is found. And that is so important. Because a God who is merely holy leaves sinners crushed. And God who is merely love cannot answer injustice and cannot hold unrighteousness accountable. But the cross is both. In the cross of Jesus Christ, God is holy and his wrath and his justice are satisfied. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, God is merciful and compassionate. And Moab needs to bow down before God's king. Moab needs more than a temporary political alliance. Moab needs to come and bow before the Davidic king and serve that king with joy. But alas, Moab was too proud. Chapter 16, verse 6 we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence in his idle boasting, he is not right. You see, Moab heard the word, they received the invitation, but Moab was too proud to come under the authority of the king in Jerusalem, and it was her downfall. And in the end, Moab suffered a greater loss than the loss of her land or the loss of her harvest or the loss of her soldiers. Moab's pride shut her out of God's kingdom of grace. And God grieved over Moab's pride. And God grieves over our pride today. Pride is the wall 
between God and man. Pride counts God's promises to be of little value. Pride ignores warning. And pride puts in our heart a begrudging reluctance to come to Jesus with our needs. Pride ignores the Word of God and pride leaves the Bible unopened day after day. Pride will not come before God and so our prayer becomes infrequent. Pride makes God's grace a burden and pride makes it seem so that whatever step we have to take, we must take to be right with God, to be an enormous sacrifice and price that we cannot afford to pay. That's what pride does. And pride led to Moab's downfall. And pride will lead to ours, to our downfall. But God, God gives us a better way. And that better way is to come humbly to Jesus. Come humbly to Jesus for salvation. And keep coming humbly to Jesus to reign over us. Have you come to Jesus to save you, not from the troubles of the day, but to save you from the holy and righteous wrath of God, before which you have no excuse or an answer? He is holy, but He is also gracious and forgiving. And if you come to Jesus and ask Him to save you, He will. That's His promise. And do you continue to come humbly to Jesus? What areas of life have you been unwilling to submit to the Lord Jesus? I think we all have them. Areas, habits, patterns of life that we stubbornly refuse to reform or change according to the word of Jesus. And loved ones, May we continue to come before Jesus with humility that he may reign over us. Let his word show you exactly where you need to be rescued. Let his spirit lead you to Jesus, repenting and believing. Would you humble yourself before Jesus? Come to him for salvation and come to him for direction. Humble yourself before Jesus that he may rescue you today and forever. And when you do, you will find in Jesus your all-sufficient and all-compassionate Redeemer. Amen. Now let's pray together. O oh God and Father, we come humbly to you and we thank you for your promises through Jesus Christ. We acknowledge ourselves to be sinners justly deserving your wrath and judgment. But we thank you that you poured out your wrath and your judgment upon Jesus. That he stood in our place and received in our place your wrath. And instead you have made us your beloved children, sons and daughters. You have made us your bride. And so we pray. 
that we may keep before our eyes our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we may continue to come to Him daily with humility and learn from Him. Oh, Father, we pray, forgive us for our pride and make us humble. Make us humble like Jesus, for it is in His name we pray. Amen.